In May of 2009, I had the privilege of going on a retreat with uh, seven other senior ministers, and I went with a man named Bob Russell, who you're going to get to see, hear speak here in just a minute this morning. Uh, Bob comes to us from Louisville, Kentucky, from Southeast Christian Church, and uh, when Bob went there uh, many, many years ago, uh, he, the church was running about 120, and when he left, it was running about 18,000. And God did a special work there. He actually wrote a book called When God Builds a Church. And some of you uh, sitting here this morning, I know that you have been through that book with us here at Oakwood. We've offered that as a study uh, from time to time, just seeing how God does a miraculous work through uh, His church when we stay in tune and in step with Him and His will. So I know you're going to be blessed this morning by a man that's meant a lot to me through the years because he's been such a great friend and such a great mentor. So please give a warm Oakwood welcome to Bob Russell. Good morning. It's nice to be invited. It's nicer to be invited back. But I spent yesterday with your staff and your elders, and you have some very dedicated elders and a talented staff. And I've always found uh, Eric to be so personable and committed, and you're blessed to have him as your preacher, so it's nice to be invited back. But I'm a lot older than I was here last time. I'm 74 years old, and you have to be a little worried if a guy that age can remember enough to preach. I heard about three guys who have been friends for years, and they didn't know it, but they celebrated the same birthday. When they discovered it, they said, hey, we're all turning 50 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some pretty waitresses down there. So they did. Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 60 on the same day. Let's celebrate together again. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got really good food down there. And so they did. Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 70 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got a wheelchair ramp down there. (laughs) Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 80 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. We've never been there before. (laughs) You know, you probably wonder whether I can remember anything, but I I hope that I can, and I hope that you'll listen, because I want to talk to you about what I think is a really important subject. I want to talk about great joy, and more specifically, great joy regardless of your circumstances. In Luke 2, when the angel appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, The angel said, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus weren't exactly ideal. The Roman soldiers brutalized the Jews. Mary and Joseph lived under the poverty level. Jesus was born in an unsanitary shed And the shepherds worked the night shift. But the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. About 33 years later, just hours before he was to be crucified, and Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, he said to his disciples, I say these things to you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be complete. About 30 years after that, the Apostle Paul, writing at a time of severe persecution of Christians, said, now the fruit of the Spirit is joy. 
So obviously, one of the dominant characteristics of a Christian should be a spirit of joy. Because regardless of what happens in the White House or North Korea or at a school in Texas, we still have this hope of life eternal. The Bible says we have a hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for us. So the dominant characteristic of the Christian ought to be joy. But I encounter a lot of Christian people who are not very joyful. In fact, it seems to me that the older we get, the more mature we get in Christ, the more sour we become. Our lives are characterized by complaining about what's wrong with us physically, pining for the past when we were more important, criticizing the younger generation for not showing more respect, whining about how horrible the government or the school or the church have become. And the older we get, it seems to me, in Christ, the more melancholy and sour we get. One teenage boy complained. He said, my grandpa has OCD. You mean he has obsessive compulsive disorder? Oh no, he said he's old, cranky, and dangerous. <laughs> Remember that movie, Grumpy Old Men? starring Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon. If we're not careful, as we mature in Christ, we can become grumpy old Christians. Now that should not be. The Bible does not say, rejoice in the Lord until you get to be 60 years of age and then you get a license to become grouchy. It says rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. I met a guy in Grayson, Kentucky a year ago who was 104 years old. He walked into the room where I was speaking, walked in on a cane, but afterward I said, I got to meet that guy. I had a conversation with him in the hallway. He had a twinkle in his eye and he told me a joke and we laughed together. And I thought maybe that's one of the reasons he's lived so long. He's got a sense of humor because the Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. But I turned around and there had to be five or six people standing in line. They just wanted to shake his hand. Older Christians who are joyful are fun to be around. They're a positive witness for Christ. But people who are old, cranky, and dangerous are not. And they're wasting away their lives one day at a time. Jesus said, I've come so that you might have life and have it to the full. So I've got one goal for you today. When you walk out those doors, I want you today to be determined, I'm going to live every day of the rest of my life in a spirit of joy. Now, I will admit that is not always easy. It's hard to be joyful when the body hurts, people disappoint you, loved ones die, the future is uncertain. But I'm going to share with you what I consider to be the four most important things we can do to be joyful as we grow older in Christ. Here's the first one. Be confident of your salvation so that you don't fear death. To be joyful in the present, you have to have hope in the future. Joy and hope go hand in hand. Uh, if you're on a cruise ship in the Caribbean and terrorists take over the cruise ship and they say, we're going to blow the ship up in two days. In the meantime, go ahead and have fun. <laughs> you're not going to have any fun. For you to have joy in the present, you've got to be sure that there is a harbor in the future. So I can understand why unbelievers become more melancholy and crotchety as they get older because their life is behind them. There's little to hope for. You see, if all we are is just roadkill and we die and vaporize, then life is meaningless and there is little hope for, for the future and there is no joy. But if you're growing older in Christ, you can still have joy because you're confident that the best is yet to be. 
That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in the book of 2 Corinthians, the end of the fourth chapter. Here's what he said. Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we waste away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Then the next verse says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we've got a building of God, eternal in the heavens, not made by human hands. You see, if you're confident that your sins are forgiven, and you're confident that you're going to go to heaven, and you're confident that you have a purpose for every day, that you can be joyful regardless of your circumstances because you know that the best is yet to be. Now, let me say just a word to any in this audience who have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you've never been baptized into Him. Uh, you may be thinking, I hope I'll go to heaven when I die because I've lived a pretty good life, and I think God is going to evaluate my good deeds versus my bad deeds, and if my good outweighs my bad, He'll say, come on in. But the Bible makes it very clear that's not the way it works. The Bible makes it very clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God and there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We are saved by putting our trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect work for us on the cross. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9 reads, It is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Evangelist Paul Little puts it like this. He said, let's like, say we line up everybody along the shore of the Pacific Ocean, California. We tell everybody, swim to Hawaii. How many would make it? Nobody. The doggy paddler might go 20 feet. The Olympic swimmer might swim 20 miles. But everybody's doomed because nobody could make it to Hawaii. But if a cruise ship came along and a benevolent captain threw out a life ring and said, I'll give a free trip to Hawaii to anybody who would get on board, who would make it to Hawaii? The ones who were humble enough to say, I can't make it on my own. I'm going to trust the captain. That's a picture of what it is to be a Christian. To admit, I'm a sinner. I can't make it to heaven on my own, but I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. So if you've never done that, do it today. Claim that promise of Jesus in Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. If you've never done that, do it today because you're running out of time. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But you know what? I encounter a lot of people who became Christian years ago and, and they were baptized, but they're not confident they're going to go to heaven. You say, you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. I, I don't know. I've not lived a perfect life. And the reason they're not confident is that they've committed so many sins since they became a Christian years ago. I grew up in a great Christian home. So when I was eight years old, eight years old, I gave my life to Christ and I was baptized. And I can remember when I came out of the baptistry, I felt so clean. I felt so confident. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to go to heaven. I felt so good. But that was like maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, well, a lot of years ago. And I have committed a whole lot more sin since I became a Christian and a whole lot worse sin since I was eight years of age than I did beforehand. And sometimes doubt will creep into my mind and I think, 
is God still going to forgive me in spite of the fact that I've lived such an imperfect Christian life? It's really important, folks, that we understand what happened to us when we gave our life to Christ. In 1 John, the third chapter, verse 1, the Bible says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. When you became a Christian, God didn't just forgive your sins. He adopted you into his family. The price that Jesus paid on the cross was not just for our sins, but it was a ransom. It was an adoption price. And when you become a Christian, you become a child of God. Now let me ask you parents, grandparents, how many times do your kids disappoint you, disobey you, betray you, and you still forgive them? A lot. I've got two sons. I have one son who's a preacher, and I've got one son who's a policeman. We've got love and justice in our home. But when one of my sons was 17 years of age, he disobeyed a family rule big time, and I was so angry at him when I found out. I found out about somebody else, so I sat him down in the family room, and I confronted him, did you do this? And to his credit, he said, yes, Dad, I did, and I am really sorry. Please forgive me. But I am not a perfect father. And I was angry, and I began to grind him down. Why would you do that? You know we've warned about that stuff. Why would you even go there? Why do you run around with those kids at all? You, I'm just really disappointed. Now, to his credit, he didn't bolt out of the house saying, I can't live in a preacher's house. I can't live up to your expectations. I'm out of here. No, he broke. And he put his head in his hands, and he, saw, he sobbed. He said, Dad, I am so sorry. Please, Dad, forgive me. Then he said, could we pray or something? Let's, let's wrap this up a little bit. Now, when he said, could we pray or something, I broke. And we knelt by the couch, arm in arm, and we both blubbered out a prayer. We stood and embraced, and I forgave him, and he forgave me for being such a stern father. Strange thing. I've never felt closer to my son than I did at that moment when he needed and received my forgiveness. Now he's out arresting people for what he used to do. <laughs> the Bible says that God is near those of a contrite spirit. Do you have any idea how many times I've almost disowned my sons? You know how many times I've almost cut them out of the will? I'll tell you how many times. Zero. They're my kids. Now God is a much better father than I am and you are and he adopted you into his family and even though there's been sin that you've committed and you've disobeyed he is eager to forgive you know this whole thing about once saved always saved kind of what we're talking about today is summed up for me in a passage of scripture in second Timothy the second chapter verses 12 and 13 here's what it says if we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Now look at that passage. We are saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But if we ever reach the point where we disown him and we say, I don't put my faith in Christ anymore. I'm an atheist. I'm a Muslim. I reject Christ. He'll disown us. He'll let us go. 
But if we are faithless, if we stumble and fall, and we still have faith in Christ, we say, Lord, I'm sorry, but I still trust in you. He will be faithful to us because he cannot disown himself and his promise to be our Father. Is that good news? Listen, there is no sin so bad that you've ever committed that the blood of Jesus Christ can't wash that white as snow. And I say in all reverence, there's no sin you're ever going to commit that he hasn't already paid for in full at the cross. That's why one of my favorite songs is an old hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. Remember that one? There's a, there's a stanza that reads, My sin owed the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not the part, but the whole. Not just what I did before I was eight, but the whole thing is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So be confident of your salvation. I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, here's the second thing we can do to be joyful as we grow older in Christ. Choose to be joyful every day regardless of the circumstances. Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, verse 19 says, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Choose life. Minerth and Meyer wrote a book years ago with a captivating title. The title of the book was Happiness is a Choice. I believe that. You choose every day to be joyful or you choose every day to be melancholy. We think happiness is a direct result of what's happening to us at the moment and to some degree that plays a part. But the more I've observed people, the more I'm convinced that joy is a daily choice we make. Since I retired from the local ministry 12 years ago, once a month I do mentoring groups for preachers. Uh, Eric mentioned that he attended one. I limit it to eight guys, and for three days we talk about ministry. Well, the first night they come in and we sit around a table. They don't know each other at all. So we go around the table and introduce ourselves. And I looked one retreat, and the first guy had a name tag on, said Caleb. I said, Caleb, tell us your story. He said, my name is Caleb. I've been the, the, the preacher of our church for four years. Be, be, before that, I was, I was the youth minister for, for two years. You could hear a pin drop in the room. This guy was a preacher of a church of 400 people and he had a rather severe stuttering problem. About the third sentence he got a twinkle in his eye and said, you, you prob probably haven't even noticed, but I, 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 I got a little bit, a bit of a speech impediment. Well, guys giggled nervously, kind of like you're doing a little bit right now. And I tried to ease the tension by saying, Caleb, are you kind of like Mel Tillis, the singer? He stuttered until he sang. And when he knew what he was going to sing, he didn't stutter. But when you preach, you know what you're going to preach? You don't stutter. Oh, no, I, I stutter some, some when, I, when I preach. Con congregation says it's kind of endearing to them. said, sometimes I get, hung up, I, get hung, I get hung up on a word and they'll call it out to me from the congregation. He said, he said, I've I just stuttered all my life. My mother said the very first words out of my mouth, or mama, 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 mama. <laughs> he had us in stitches the entire week. One of my favorite preachers. One of the best examples of a weakness becoming a strength I've ever seen because of a spirit of joy. You choose to be joyful regardless of the circumstances or you choose to be sour. And I want to challenge you every day before you get out of bed, when you first awaken, you say that verse of scripture, this is the day the Lord has made and I can 
be grouchy and ruin it and drag everybody else down with me, or I can rejoice and be glad, and I choose to rejoice and be glad. Listen, you cannot always control your circumstances, but you can choose to refrain from griping and complaining so much every day. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining. Let's all repeat that verse together. Do everything without complaining. You can do better than that. Let's do it again. Do everything without complaining. Now, some of you here, I don't know you well, some of you here think complaining is your spiritual gift. (laughs) And you complain about everything. I'm going to tell you the absolute truth. Listen to me. No No matter how bad you feel or how much you hurt, nobody wants to hear it. And it makes you feel worse and it alienates friends. So unless you're talking to your doctor or a counselor or talking to your mate when he's asleep or she's asleep, don't (laughs) complain. Refrain from complaining. Do everything without complaining. You can't always control your circumstances, but you can choose to laugh out loud several times a day. You know, the Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. And I think when we laugh out loud, enzymes are released in our body that make us healthier, makes other people healthier, I'll guarantee it. You can't always choose your circumstances, but you can choose to develop a cheerful countenance. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a happy heart makes the face cheerful and a cheerful look brings joy to the heart. Folks, as we get older, our muscles droop and our skin sags. And if you're not careful and you don't work on it, by the time you get to be fairly elderly, you're going to look like the Grinch has stole Christmas. Now, you can spend thousands of dollars and you can get yourself a facelift and look like a scarecrow, or you can save yourself a whole lot of money and just learn to twinkle with your eyes and smile a little bit so that your natural expression is joyful. Psalm 31.5 says, those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces are never ground, uh, ground down with shame. There's an old button that says, if you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, notify your face. I tell There ought to be a radiance about us, don't you think? The other people notice. I tell these preachers that come in, visit with me. I I tell them, when you get in the pulpit, you need to have a countenance that's joyful. You're communicating good news. And uh, so work on your countenance. I say, watch Joel Osteen when he preaches. Don't listen to what he says, but watch his expression. (laughs) And he's got this contagious smile that just attracts people to him. So I tell them, look, once in a while, you can get in the pulpit and you can say, folks, I've really had a rough week and uh, I just don't, I've got a bad cold and I'm not feeling well, so I, I just, just need you to pray for me so that the Holy Spirit can still work and your congregation will rally to you, but not very often. For the most part, you better get in that pulpit, regardless of what's happened to you that week, and smile and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And they will say, well, that's hypocritical. No, that's obedience. Jesus said, when you're fasting, don't let the world know that you're fasting. Wash your face, comb your hair, put on a cheerful countenance to the world, and your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Look at this verse in 1 Peter 4.13. Tough verse. It says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. How can you rejoice when you're participating in sufferings? Well, a couple things. One is when you suffer, you can better appreciate what Jesus went through for you. You have people betray you. 
you better appreciate how Judas Iscariot and Peter and the disciples denied Jesus. You go through stress, you think about how Jesus went through so much agony that he sweat drops of blood. You go through physical pain, it'll help you appreciate what Jesus endured for you on the cross. I'll tell you, the most pain I ever went through physically, I had a kidney stone one time. Do I have a witness here? Okay. All of you will agree, kidney stones hurt worse than birth pangs. Don't ask me how I know, I just know. But I was thinking, man, it feels like somebody's got a knife in my back and they're turning it. And then I realized, you know, Jesus had nails in his hands and feet and he didn't get any morphine for six hours. And if I never experienced that kind of pain, I wouldn't appreciate what Jesus went through. The other reason you can rejoice in suffering is that when you suffer, your opportunity to witness is enhanced. C.S. Lewis once called pain God's megaphone, said God shouts to us in our pain. But pain is also God's spotlight. And when you go through tough times, your family, your friends, the people you are associated with, they watch to see how genuine your faith is, whether it holds you up. When I was a young preacher, I was playing basketball with a bunch of guys from church, and I was new to this church, and I sprained my ankle and I thought it was broken, and I was writhing in pain on the floor, and all the guys gathered around me to see if the preacher was okay, and one guy said, go ahead and cuss, preacher, we know you're thinking it. <laughs> he was right, too. <laughs> People watch to see what your language is, what your spirit is. Do you hold on to your faith? And you may have more opportunity to do good for the cause of Christ when you're hurting than you would in five years of ordinary living. So rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ because you better appreciate what Jesus went through for you and your opportunity for witness is enhanced. Okay, here's the third thing we can do to be joyful. Become increasingly generous with your resources. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we know that principle, but we forget it as we get older more blessed to give than to receive. And the older we get, the more likely we are to be hoarders rather than givers, and we give less and less away. I'll tell you why. We've had it drilled to us in the United States that the most important thing you can do financially is to get ready for retirement. We want someday out there to be able to retire and have enough money that we're not a burden on anybody and we don't have to worry about anything. So we get in this habit of hoarding more and more, not wondering if we've got enough. And even when we get enough, our, life, our, our net worth is directly tied to our net worth and we want to get more and more and we just keep hoarding it up. But listen to this verse of Scripture from the words of Jesus from Luke 16, verse 9. Jesus said, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves, and then when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He doesn't say hoard up worldly wealth, and then we got a whole lot, you can die, and you can will it to the church or your children. He says you use it while you're living to make friends for yourselves, and then when it's all gone, when the last checks bounce, then you'll be ready to die. So I decided I'm going to put that into practice. Since I turned 70, my net worth is declining every year because whatever little I have, I'm giving away. And I tell my children, don't expect a big inheritance from me. I like that little slogan, no child left a dime. I think that's the way it ought to be. <laughs> but I also tell my kids, look, I'm going to give away what little I have to church and missionaries 
but I'm going to give you a significant amount while you're still living so I can see you enjoy it and when you need it. What do most people do? They die, put their kids in their will. They die at 85 and their kids are 60 years of age. Their kids don't need it then. When do their kids need it? When they're 40, 45, and they got kids in college. That's when they need money, not when they're 60. So I've got these two sons. I got seven grandchildren. And every Christmas, I write out a generous, a generous check, put it in a white envelope. I don't have to worry about buying any presents. I just put that white envelope on the Christmas tree, and it is the grand finale of Christmas every year. All the presents are opened up, and somebody goes and picks out their white envelope, and my son and daughter-in-law, they'll open it up, and my daughter-in-law will squeal and come over and hug me and say, thanks a lot, Pop. And my sons will come over and say, thanks, Dad. I really need it. You bailed me out again. How's your health? You got a lot of speaking engagements next year. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not hoping I die so they get their hands on it. They want me to keep on living so that I can keep on giving. And I've made friends of myself with my children while I'm living. I'm going to tell you what, I'm having a whole lot more fun at Christmas than some of you misers are hoarding it up and you don't give it away because it's more blessed to give than to receive. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I, I just don't have much money. I don't have anything to give away. I, I just got to save it. I guarantee you that you've got valuables sitting in your house that you've never even looked at for years. You got jewelry and guns and china and silver that doing nobody any good. And you could be a blessing to church or your children just by giving away. My wife and I moved for the first time in 27 years a year ago. And I'm going through my office in my home and I came, my, my son Phil was helping me and pack up and I came across things on my shelf that I hadn't even noticed for years. I had sports memorabilia on my shelf. And I said, that's not doing me any good. I said, Phil, one of the policemen, three kids, could you use these? He said, maybe, Dad. And he got on the internet on his phone and he said, hey, Dad, did you know this baseball signed by Leo DeRocher is worth $350? Dad, did you know this little helmet signed by Johnny Unitas is worth $750? I said, no, but give it back to me then. <laughs> no. I go ahead and take it. That's right. And he did. I guarantee you they're not on his shelf today. Uh, and I had the joy of seeing him want something that I could give and contributing to his financial well-being. I just want to challenge you. If you want to be a joyful person, become a more generous person. More blessed to give than to receive. Here's the last thing we can do to be joyful. And that is spend an increasing amount of time thinking about what awaits you in heaven. Get your focus off this world onto the next. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 3.2, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The reason we get melancholy and depressed is because we got our focus on this world. Even as Christians, we got our heads down. And we know this world and everything in it is passing away. Our health is slipping away. Our kids move away. Our money isn't dependable. The stock market's going up and down. Our church changes and Death is sneaking up on us and life isn't joyful because we're, all our hopes are in this uncertain world. 
I'm telling you, lift up your eyes. Get your focus off this world and set your affections on the things that are above. I'm 74 years old, be 75 in October. I'm thinking a whole lot more about heaven these days than I used to. I was in Dallas, Texas a year ago, and I woke up with a familiar pain in the back of my leg. I've had uh, three blood clots. So I called my doctor in Louisville, Kentucky, and I said, uh, I think I'm getting another blood clot. I expected him to say, well, check with me when you get back. He said, you go immediately to the hospital. I went to Baylor Hospital in Dallas. They took an uh, ultrasound, x-rays. ER doc- doctor came to me and said, Mr. Russell, you've had three fragments from those blood clots lodged in your lung. Sir, if one of those hit your heart, you'd be dead in two seconds. Two seconds? That's not much time to repent, you know that? (laughs) You understand how close you are to the next world? Get your mind off the things of this world and on to heaven where the best is yet to be and you can still be joyful. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised about some things. I think we're going to be surprised at the awesomeness of God. No, the Bible says no man has ever seen God at any time and lived. But one day we're going to see God. The one who, the Bible says, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, higher than the heavens are above the earth. In fact, Isaiah said that he has measured the heavens with the palm of his, span of his hand. He he's, uh, carries the waters in the palm of his hand. One day, we're going to see that being that put the stars in place and designed the DNA molecule. We're going to see God. One of the things I look for, I want to hear God sing. Do you ever think about that? Jesus sang the night of the Last Supper. They sang a hymn. Imagine God seeing him, hearing him face to face. And I'd, we're going to be overwhelmed. I guarantee you we're going to fall on our knees and cry holy. Something else is going to surprise us about heaven? I think we're going to be surprised at the multitude of the magnificence of angels. You know, the Bible says there's a spirit world out there that we do not see, just like we don't see microwaves or electricity. There are, Revelation 5 says there are are 10,000 times, 10,000 angels, 100 million angels. And when our spiritual eyes are open and we see these beings that have been there all the time, hardly ever manifest them to men, they're created a little higher than men. I think we're going to be captivated by angels all around. Something else is going to surprise us about heaven. I think we're going to be surprised how good we feel. I remember the first day I retired, I woke up the next morning, I couldn't get over how good I felt. I didn't have any pressure. Or I remember leaving Louisville, Kentucky one day in July. It was 98 degrees, high humidity. Flew to Denver, Colorado, got in the SUV, went up Mount Evans, 7,000 feet, got out, and the air was crisp, and the sun was shining, and it was cool, and I took one breath, and I thought, wow, why am I not living out here? We're so accustomed to living with pollution and pain and pressure, we think it's normal. But when we open our eyes and breathe our first in heaven, I think we're going to be astounded at how good we feel. The Bible says, eye is not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We have a wonderful woman in our church named Lee Tate. She died about a year and a half ago. And here's a picture of Lee at age, I think, 86. 
This is her countenance all the time. She's just a joyous Christian. She was so attractive at 86 that the secular world would hire her. You'd see her picture on billboards or she would be on an ad on television promoting some product for senior citizens. And she was a big encourager to me, just a wonderful person. Now her life was not always easy. Ten years before this picture, her beloved husband, Dr. Robert Tate, uh, passed away and she had doted over him. She loved him dearly and she really missed him. And she battled cancer the last few years of her life, but she still sang in a choir. She still served as a greeter. She was still on the prayer team. She was still positive, beautiful countenance. When she died, her daughters gave me a letter that she had written to be given to me after her death. I want to read one paragraph and we'll close. Dear Bob, when you receive this note of thanks, I will arrive safely home to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the sweet prince he gave to me as my traveling companion through this earthly journey. But when you arrive, don't look for us at the gate because we'll have gone on downtown where the action is. <laughs> Bob may be playing drums in the marching band. Meanwhile, comfort my darling precious girls Sarah and Robin until we meet again in Christ Jesus Lee. That's what I'm talking about. A confidence of your salvation because you've been adopted into the family of God. A choice to be joyful every day regardless of the circumstances. A willingness to give of yourself, even taking time to write a letter to somebody to be given when you die. And the confidence that the best is yet to be in heaven. So don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, your Savior, who is Christ the Lord.